Many in our listening community have the privilege to be of influence in the lives of children. And we assume correctly that spending time with them is important. What sometimes gets missed is how that time is spent. On this episode, Tina Payne Bryson returns to teach us the power of showing up. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 461. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Leaders know that they need to show up. They need to show up in all kinds of capacities, certainly in the workplace and also for most of us at home and specifically with kids. And those of you who have been listening to the show for a while know that as much as I love having conversations about leadership and business, once in a while, I like to take the perspective of looking at some of the key parts of our personal lives, our families, our finances, and our children. And I know many of you in our community do have children. And those of you who don't, uh, many of you also have children in your lives. And today, a conversation that'll be so important about how to show up. And the great thing is it's actually not just about how to show up with children. There's so many wonderful perspectives here that will actually help us show up more effectively as leaders. I am thrilled to welcome back to the show, Tina Payne Bryson. She is a psychotherapist and the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, which is a multidisciplinary clinical practice, and also of the Play Strong Institute, a center devoted to the study, research, and practice of play therapy through a neurodevelopment lens. Tina is the author with Dan Siegel of two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, each of which has been translated into over 40 languages. Tina keynotes conferences and conducts workshops for kids, parents, educators, clinicians, and industry leaders all over the world, and makes frequent media appearances for venues like Time, Good Morning America, and The New York Times. She's recently released with Dan Siegel their newest book, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired. Tina, I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I am so excited about this topic and the science behind it. So I can't wait to talk about it with you. I think about you all the time because I read No Drama Discipline, I think six or seven years ago when our son was very young. And it's not often that I have the thought of a book that I've read coming into my consciousness pretty much daily. But it has absolutely been a game changer for me and Bonnie since read it and how we are present with our kids in discipline and creating an environment where they can learn and grow. So first of all, thank you for the beautiful work you've done. And it's been so influential to me in so many ways. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much. I love that book still. It was meant to be a game changer and really to say we are way off in terms of what we're thinking about with discipline in that. We often think about our job as disciplinarians, as punishment enforcers, but really the whole idea is about teaching. And I love the idea in that book that really it's about kind of peeling the layers back behind the behavior and getting clearer on what's happening, you know, beneath the behaviors and, and to use those as opportunities. And I think that can serve us in really all of our relationships is instead of just focusing on the behavior to think about the mind behind the behavior. I'm so glad to hear that. And, you know, you probably think of it every day 
because your children, like everyone else's, give you opportunities to discipline every day, right? Yeah. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And it's an ongoing practice and it's a struggle, certainly. And that's why I was so excited to see the new book. And I saw the article that you and Dan were featured recently in the New York Times. And there was a paragraph in here that really jumped out at me from this article. So I'm quoting from the New York Times. You write, parents today feel increasing pressure to practice some form of hyper-parenting, a time and resource intensive style of child rearing, also known as helicopter parenting. Even though a majority of parents now see it as the optimal approach, hyperparenting is mainly practiced by the affluent who spend huge amounts of time and money in an effort to give their kids every possible advantage. Intensive parenting is problematic, not only because of the pressure it puts on parents, but because some research suggests that all this exhausting parental striving may not be the best way to raise children. In fact, our research and experience suggests that raising happy, healthy, Flourishing Kids requires parents to do just one key thing. It's not about reading all the parenting bestsellers or signing your kids up for all the right activities. You don't even have to know exactly what you're doing. Just show up. This begs the question, of course, what does it mean to show up? As a parent, I'm sort of listening like as a parent, hearing that separate from just them being my words. And I just feel like, oh, thank God. You know, I think it's it's really relieving. And We think we have to be everything for our children and do everything for them and provide everything for them, including every enrichment advancing opportunity possible. And the research says you don't have to do that. In fact, a lot of those things can do harm to our children. And what the research for 50 years has said, even looking at all cultures across the world, so this is a mammal need. This is not just like, you know, affluent U.S. culture. This is like a mammal deep in our brain need, is that the thing that is the best predictor for how well kids turn out is that they have secure attachment with at least one person. And what secure attachment is, is really this idea that if you have a need, your attachment figure, your grown-up who's in charge of you, will see your need and respond to it quickly and sensitively. Not perfectly, but most of the time so that the kid can predict someone's going to show up for me if I have a need. So we can think about like a little bear cub in the forest who hears a scary noise or who, you know, something happens and the bear gets afraid. The bear cub instinctually runs to their parent, you know, the, their attachment figure to help them survive. And that's the purpose of our attachment system. But what, what this is about is, is really when your child needs you, you show up. And so Dan and I, when we talk about this, what does it mean to show up? We talk about the four S's, to keep our kids safe. It means to help them be seen. So safe, seen, soothed, and secure. But really when we help our kids feel safe, seen, and soothed enough times, not perfectly, what happens is we are showing up for them in those moments And over time, they get that fourth S, which is security. And that does not mean like, I feel secure about myself, but rather I am secure in knowing. My brain has wired to expect that if I have a need, when I'm at my worst, when I'm falling apart, when I'm scared, whatever, somebody shows up for me. And that's really what it's about. It's about showing up for our kids, being present when they need us. It's so helpful. And as I was reading through the book and reading the New York Times article and thinking about those four S's, 
The one that leapt out at me is the one that I think I struggle with the most. And my senses from the writing is that other parents tend to struggle with a lot too, is scene. Yeah. What is yeah, it about? That's the one we all struggle with. Yeah. What is it about scene that's so hard for us? Well, you know, first let me define what I mean by that. What we mean when we talk about scene is where your child feels that you get them that you really see what's happening for them, what they feel, what they think, what they're experiencing. So it's really more about not seeing them with our eyes and really seeing them more with our mind. So, you know, Dan and I use a word called mind sight, which is really about seeing your own mind in the minds of others. What we're really talking about here is that we look at the mind behind the behavior. One of the ways we can talk about this is that kids feel felt or they feel like we really understand them and what they're experiencing. And things we do as parents that come very easily for most of us are to dismiss or deny our kids' internal experience. Like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Why are you making such a fuss about that? Or there's nothing to be afraid of. Why are you freaking out about that? Or to tell them they're not feeling that, you know, you're fine. You're okay. Why are you don't need to cry. You're fine. So we can either tell them they don't feel something when they actually do, or we tell them that they shouldn't be feeling that. And when we do that, it's not the worst thing in the world, but what happens is, you know, if you say, you're fine, you're not upset, you're, you're totally fine, the child does not feel fine. And when we say that, the child has two options. They can either say, I must be wrong about how I feel, or my parent is wrong. And our deep mammalian need to be able to trust our parents so that we believe we'll, we will survive is so strong that what happens is we stop trusting ourselves. And what happens too is your child has an experience where they're like, okay, she doesn't get me. She doesn't understand how I think or how I feel. And I'm left alone to deal with it. So my kid came in, he's 13, but he came in last week, but he was upset because he thought there was a spider in his room. And he's like, mom, I've been up for a while trying to find it, but I can't find it. And it's really hard. You know, I don't want to sleep when I think there might be a spider in my room. So, you know, I'm on would be like, you're fine. It's just spiders. There's spiders everywhere. Just go to sleep. Right. Which again, not doing ton parental damage when I say that, but instead to say, oh, I wouldn't want to sleep if there was a spider in my room. If, you know, of course that's freaking you out. Let me see if I can come and help. So it's really just taking just a moment to have his internal experience. Like I say, oh yeah, I can see why you'd be upset. He feels seen and he knows I'm going to help him. Whereas if I don't respond that way, he goes to his room and he's like, well, I'm totally on my own with this fear and she doesn't get me. So what that does is it actually, when we do that enough times to our children, they really internalize that. And as they get older, they stop sharing stuff with us. You know, if we basically give them the message, like, I don't want to hear it, they believe us, you know, and they stop talking to us. I think the things that really get in the way most in terms of really providing that scene, one is our own history. If we had parents who didn't see our minds, who didn't see, didn't pay any attention to our feelings or our thoughts or really our internal landscape, our brains may not have been wired to really know how to do that or how to even use that kind of language. So that's one thing that can get in the way. The best predictor for how well our kids turn out is that they have someone who shows up for them, provides them secure attachment. But the best predictor for how well parents can provide that kind of secure attachment and can show up for their kids is not whether or not we had that with our own parents. Thank God. <laughs> That's about 40% <laughs> of us. About 40% of us did not have 
what's called secure attachment with our parents. We had one of the forms of insecure attachment where one of our parents either avoided connection and, and, and relationship with us and dismissed our, our feelings and those kinds of things. Or we had a parent who was really chaotic and flooded with need and they were really unpredictable. Or worse, we had a parent who was the source of our terror. There was a paragraph that leapt out to me in the book that just speaks exactly to that. And I, I wrote it down and it says, even when things don't go as you'd like, your relationships can serve as a source of strength and meaning. Many people don't have this advantage. They instead grew up in families where almost all of the attention was focused on external and surface level experiences, what they did and how they behaved, misbehaved, and achieved. Families like these can have fun with one another and enjoy activities together, but the world within is largely ignored. And I read that and I thought, wow, you know, thinking about that 40%. And then I also just remembered the message from the book and what you just said of, that doesn't have to define us, even if that was the household that we grew up in, that we can move beyond that as parents and create a, a different kind of experience for our children. That's exactly right. And that's one of the other reasons I love this science is that it's so hopeful. And that is that our history is not our destiny, that the best predictor for us being able to provide secure attachment and be able to show up for our kids is not whether or not we had a parent who did that but rather have we come to make sense of those experiences? What that means is we reflect on them. And we go, God, my parents, like we talked, you know, family dinners, we talked about the dog and the weather and the neighbors and we went on bike rides and, you know, we hung out a lot, but we never talked about anything beyond surface level. And in fact, if I was upset about something, I would be either distracted from it or told that I needed to quit being such a baby or those kinds of things. And when we look back, it doesn't go, you know what? I felt alone a lot. I didn't feel like I could turn to my parents or I could, I could turn to my mom, but not my dad. Or there were times my parents didn't make me feel safe or whatever it is that when we begin to reflect on those, our brain actually moves to a more integrated state so that we're able then to not sort of be enslaved to our history that's acting out without our awareness, but instead we are able to really start making those changes. And so this is super helpful, but you're right, Dave, if you grew up in a family and you know, I had a mom that provided me with secure attachment and I had a dad who provided me with what you're talking about there. One of the forms of insecure attachment is called an avoidant attachment. And that you basically avoid intimacy, you avoid connection, you avoid dealing with feelings, you dismiss the importance of all of that. And that's the other thing that's so hopeful in this research is it really just takes one person who really can help you feel safe, seen, and soothed so that you can build that secure, that fourth S. So, you know, that's a big thing that can get in the way of us really seeing our children is if we didn't have parents who did that, how in the world would we know how to do that? One of the things we do in our book is we provide some questions at the end of each chapter that ask us some of those questions so we can begin to reflect and have what's called a coherent narrative about what happened to us. Not, not where we're running from what happened, like that doesn't matter, it's just the past, who cares? Or where we're preoccupied with the past, where we're like flooded by it all the time and we just are still like tangled up in it. Those are not coherent narratives. Really you go, okay, I'm gonna look at the past, I'm gonna look at what my parents did or didn't do and talk about how that impacted me. And obviously we can do that in therapy, but we can do it by just talking about it or journaling about it or reflecting on it just in our own minds. And when we do that, it really allows us to start building the circuitry so that we can see our children. 
that's one of the things I love about what you and Dan always do is just make this so practical and accessible. And I'm coming back to the word you said a couple times, just that feeling of aloneness that a lot of kids and, and families yeah. feel. It's an interesting dichotomy because you can be around a lot of people and still be alone. And one of the distinctions I really picked up from the book is this is more than just being around children and family members physically and physically present. Right. Because I think that that's a thinking error that a lot of parents make is like, well, if I'm with my kids, if I spent Saturday with them, if I took them to Legoland, if I did all these things, then I showed up and I was present. And that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, we can be physically present and completely checked out. And particularly, you know, devices are a big part of that. I'm a huge fan of devices. I love my smartphone and my computer, and I think they're incredibly valuable tools. In fact, people are listening to this right now on a device. So we yeah. you know, don't have a problem with that. But really, I think we can be physically present, but just totally checked out. And moms in particular really struggle with the idea of, of working sometimes, you know, and they're like, but, you know, how much is enough time with my kids? And really, that's the other thing this research says is, of course, quantity time ha- matters. You know, you can't expect to have a close relationship with your child if you never spend time with them, right? You have to have spend some time with them. But really what the science is saying, what matters is that quality piece where we are really present, we're showing up in the moment. So what that means is when my kid wants to tell me something, if it's not a good time, I can say, if I'm in the middle of something, I can either say, hey, I really want to be able to listen carefully and really hear what you're saying. And I've got something I'm in the middle of. So give me a few minutes and then I'll come find you. Or to, to close your computer and make eye contact and really listen. And so some really practical ways we can do that are, so one is really create space for it, where you just allow a few moments of silence or quiet when you're with your child. So that could be at bedtime. You know, you've got your bedtime routine, you're reading, and then if you usually are like reading and then you kiss them and turn off the light, goodnight, give it two or three minutes, you know, not of silence, but just lie there with them for a minute or two. And just let it be quiet for 20 seconds and see if your child has something that they want to share with you or that just something they're thinking about. You know, they sometimes come up with really fun or funny things like, how do they make the sticky stuff on the back of Band-Aids? You know, it might not be something (laughs) like, you know, is there a God? It might be more like, you know, about how something works or whatever. So just creating moments for that. Not having our devices out when we're having dinner together. In fact, there's some studies that show that just having your phone on the table, even if you never check it, will actually keep the conversation from going as deeply as if there's no phones on the table. And I think the other thing is just when your child is telling you something to really listen. And one of the really practical ways to do that is when they start talking to you to sit down. When you sit down, instead of standing up, you're communicating all kinds of things non-verbally. You're communicating, you're important to me. I have time for you what you say is important and I want to hear you. So part of that's just really being a good listener and creating space for it and not just listening for the words, but listening for the nonverbal stuff. Sometimes our kids will tell you something and the words don't match what they're really feeling, but you can pick up on it if you're really present in terms of mentally and emotionally present, not just physically present. I remember you making the invitation in No Drama Discipline to get down at a child's level when you're having that conversation. And It is really remarkable, not only the change in their demeanor most of the time, but also like my own focus. It's really incredible when I've done that. And to reinforce what you said about nighttime, with our son in particular, who's almost eight, it's really amazing 
that sometimes the most, the best conversations of the day are the three minutes right before bedtime. And if we make the space to do that, 60, 70% of the time, there's something really, really interesting that he wants to tell us. Um, and it's it, it, that, that space. And I, I love the fact that you say, you know, it doesn't need to be a whole afternoon or a whole weekend. It could be just for a few minutes. Absolutely. And that's the, you know, that's the thing is like, you know, most families, if you look at the research, most families, the quality time they spend is like whether parents are working or at home or working out in the world, you know, 30 minutes is typically the most kind of quality time families spend together, but make those 30 minutes count, make dinner count, make those three minutes at bedtime count, having your kid go with you to walk the dog. And, you know, sometimes kids do better sharing, especially if they're teenagers, if you're not looking at them with like sustained eye contact, they do better, <laughs> you know, yeah. playing ping pong or, and keep in mind too, it doesn't always have to be like a deep reflective conversation. It can be if my kid's like, Hey, will you play ping pong with me? And I say, yes. And maybe we don't talk about anything deep, but we're just out there joining together, you know, shared attention actually leads to a lot of emotional closeness. So yeah, just making the moments we do have with them count. You mention in the book something you call the triad of connection. Tell me about what that is and how does that play into helping kids be seen? Okay, so the triad of connection is really about tuning into your child. So it's really perceiving what is happening in that internal landscape, understanding it or making sense of it, and then responding to it. So Really, in a way, we could call this attuned communication. You tune in to what they're experiencing. You stay with a little bit of curiosity to see what is that about for my kid, and then you respond. Now, this is similar to what I was saying earlier, which is that if your kid shares something with you and you take a split second to really think about what are they saying, what are they feeling, or what thoughts might they have connected to this, and then reflect back to them what they're saying, and respond in a way that is appropriate, it actually is a match. So let me give an example of this. So I had a, a moment where, you know, one of my kids hit the other one. And so the kid who hit the other one is really mad. And so I go to him in that moment and I can say, oh, you're so mad right now. Is that right? You're just furious at your brother. And when I say that, his heart rate actually stops beating as fast his body temperature cools just a little bit. His muscle tone starts to relax because what I've said has matched with his internal experiences. I perceived the anger. I made sense of it. It's probably because your, your brother did something to you. And then I responded in a way that's like, she gets me and she's going to help me figure this out. And so it actually can start turning off that fight, flight, freeze defense mechanism. So there's a lot of benefits to that triad of connection. And it's really back to the idea of seeing and then leading to soothing. So, you know, when we talk about soothe, soothing is really about helping your child. It's really about helping them calm down and letting them know, like, I'm here for you and I'll help you. This does not mean protecting them from hard things. It means walking with them through it. So one night, my sons had friends over, and the youngest really wanted to stay up later with the bigger boys. So I made the first mistake by saying, okay, fine, you can stay up 15 more minutes, and then it's going to be bedtime. What that meant was that he was just 15 minutes more tired, and we just pushed the battle 15 minutes later. You know what I mean? Yeah. So then it's time, and I take him upstairs. So... um we're lying there and he's like, it's not fair. And he's kicking his legs and he's just, you know, mad. And 
And instead of saying, you know, what I wanted to say, Dave, if I'm just being honest is, look, I gave you 15 minutes. I feel like you, you know, you totally broke your end of the bargain. And next time you're not getting extra time. That's what I want to say in the moment. See, this is where you and I differ. That's what I actually do say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that that leads us to repair, which we should definitely talk about in a moment. Right. But, you know, in that moment when I'm remembering that I can say no to a behavior, but say yes to his internal experience. So I can say, oh, you're so disappointed. You feel like you're missing out and it feels so unfair because they get extra time. Is that is that what's going on? Now, keep in mind that what we give attention to makes the brain fire and wire. And the science shows that if we pay attention to that internal experience, it actually builds the brain's capacity so that they can understand themselves and others. It builds insight and empathy. So in that moment, I'm like, oh, you're so disappointed. It feels really unfair. You're afraid you're missing out. And he's like, yeah. And he's still kicking for a minute, but then he starts to settle. And I say, I know it feels awful to be that disappointed and that frustrated and I'm right here with you. And I just say that and I let him feel, I let him feel disappointed because the way we become resilient is by practicing dealing with difficult things with enough support. And so I show up in that moment and I can say, yeah, that feels awful. And I'm right here with you while you feel it, buddy. I don't have to fix it. I don't have to change my mind in terms of the boundary. I'm just present to what's going on. And I start rubbing his back and I'm just there where he feels seen and soothed. This is where, for me, there's uh, leadership and parenting are different things, but there are certainly overlaps. And one of the words you said a moment ago, the word curiosity, just comes up for me when I think about this triad of, of connection of perceiving and making sense and responding, of if we can lead with being curious about where their mind is, where are they right now, what are they experiencing, and we can start there and take a moment to just stop before we respond and perceive and make sense that the entire experience of that moment changes. And boy, we can use that in the workplace too. Obviously, very different contexts, but taking that time to stop and be curious and listen and for people to be seen by us. Yeah, that's huge. I think if we could harness curiosity as a daily practice, even in just one interaction, it could totally change our lives. I think you know, my, my husband and I were having this conversation at, a, at one of our kids' football games, and he was telling me about a friend of ours and how she had been, you know, what he thought was really rude. And he's like, I can't believe her. Like, help me under, he was really great. He was like, help me understand why would she act that way? Like, what is that about? And I was like, she's afraid. Like, she, I think that's fear. And as we started to kind of explore with curiosity about why she was acting the way she was, we actually got to a place where we felt a lot of compassion for her instead of being pissed at her. And, you know, this is a huge thing with our kids. We assume we know what's happening. And sometimes we're way off. I, I worked with a mom who came to me because her, her son was having really severe separation anxiety in a way she had never seen before. And so she's like, I don't know what to do. Like the drop-off times are just horrible. And, and I just feel horrible for him. And I don't know what to do. And I said, well, have you ever asked him what's so hard about the goodbye? She said, no, I never thought to even wonder about that. I never thought to ask him. And so she did. And it was funny because he said, my teacher squeezes me too hard and her voice is too loud. Oh, wow. Actually wasn't having separation anxiety at all. He was feeling his sensory system was getting overwhelmed by the way his teacher greeted him. And it was an easy fix. She gave him a little fist bump instead and she turned her volume down. So I think we miss opportunities 
where we can really just ask our kids. And, and one of the ways I do that in discipline is I'll ask, hey, I know you know it's not okay to talk to me like that, or I know you know it's not okay to hurt your brother. So what's going on for you? What's that about? And we have to really ask it, the way we ask it matters to be like, so what the hell was that about? That's not curiosity. Yeah. That's just a <laughs> different way to lecture, you know? Yeah. But I think if we ask our kids and, we, and we're curious, what can happen is we can continue to, we're giving attention to the idea of curiosity and we can stoke curiosity in our own children and, and in how they approach the world. Hmm. Oh, it's fabulous. And I've been reading your book all week and uh, so been much more conscious of thinking about these things as I probably normally am. And yesterday morning, I went into my son's room, we were waking up and I said something that just seemed very innocent to me and he just started bawling. And, oh. and I was like, oh, wow, I missed it. And I'm not sure I could have seen it coming. But we all have those moments as parents where either we could have seen it coming and we made the wrong choice or it, it just something out of the blue. You said the word repair a few minutes ago. Yeah. When we missed up, what does that look like? Yeah. And this is, this is actually the first S. We've talked about seen and soothed, and we've talked about how these experiences lead to the fourth S of secure, but we haven't yet talked about safe. And really the thing is, is that, you know, the first thing that we need to remember is when it comes to what, what we mean by making sure our children experience safety is first protecting them from harm, right? Making sure they're in their car seat, watching them when they're near the water, those kinds of things, which comes pretty instinctually for most of us as parents. But the second part of safe is that we do not become the source of our child's fear and terror, right? And so this is huge. This is back what I was saying, you know, imagine you're a chimp in the jungle and you get hurt or you're terrified and you run to your parent because it's a biological instinct, but your parent is the source of your terror and the source of your pain. That actually is, you know, what's called disorganized attachment. And it's one of the best predictors we have for dealing with mental illness and, and psychopathology later in life. It's really, really powerful. This would be like, obviously, in cases of abuse and neglect and things like that. But there are way more daily ways that, you know, most people can't really identify with that, what I'm talking about there. But let's think about this. What about you and your significant other yelling at each other, screaming at each other, fighting in ways that are not respectful? Or you threaten to, to leave your child somewhere, you know, like they won't come with you at Target and you're like, okay, fine. Remember all those bad guys I warned you about? Like, you're on your own. I'm out of here. You know, we don't say it that way. We're like, okay, if you don't come, I'm leaving. But we're basically threatening to abandon them somewhere where we've told them could be dangerous. So we do little things like that where we can be the kind of the source of our child's fear. And the most common way that that happens is when we lose our cool. We flip our lids and we yell. You know, there was a moment um, I've written about a time I threatened to remove one of my children's body parts. My three-year-old stuck his tongue out and I lost my mind. And I told him if he stuck it out one more time, I was going to rip it out of his mouth. So yes, we will freak our kids out by being unpredictable and scary in a moment because we start yelling and screaming and we, be, you know, we act in ways that we typically don't. We become unpredictable. And the key to that is, you know, first do no harm if you can. Leave the room, calm yourself down before you have those interactions. The second is repair, repair, repair. And that is that even when we have those ruptures, times we think we're joking with our kid, but they actually, it, we hurt their feelings, or where we act like crazy people and we, you know, we scare them. In those moments, the most important thing is to repair with them. So we go to them and we go, oh, I'm so sorry I handled myself in that way. I really wish I had done that differently. 
that must have been scary when I yelled. Do you want to tell me about it? Or, or even it doesn't even have to be a big, long, reflective dialogue. You can say, hey, earlier, you know, when we had to rush out the door and I had to grab your shoes and put you in your car seat really fast, I know you didn't like that. And I'm sorry that that felt bad to you. Or you can even just be like, hey, I blew it. I'm so sorry. Mm. That's it, right? And the research shows that when we make repairs with our kids, not only is it not, do we kind of erase the harm in it, in it to a degree, but it can be actually beneficial for our kids. Now, this is huge. So all of you parents out there, when you mess up with your kids, as long as you repair, it's good for your kids. So let's talk about this for a sec. Here's the deal. Relationships are messy and they're full of conflict. What happens is when we mess up and when we are rude to our kids or we're, you know, we yell at them or whatever and we repair, they get an experience that's like, wow, there was conflict in that relationship and things didn't feel good in our in my relationship with them. And I didn't like that. And it got okay again. And in fact, now I feel like maybe we're even a little closer because we we understand something deeper about each other. So what it does is it expands our child's window of tolerance or resilience for handling conflict in relationships. So that if they have a friend that says something mean to them or they have a fight with, you know, a sibling. They don't think, oh, it's over. There's no coming back. It really gives them the relational resilience when we repair. And they're able to handle the tough interactions that will come at them as they age in more productive ways. One of the things I so appreciate about the work you and Dan have done on just the brain science behind this too is the brain is changing and it's changeable. And your work has changed the lives of a lot of families and you've been influential in the media and 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 in speaking in the last few years as you've helped so many what have you changed your mind on tina you know i think the biggest thing is that flaw and imperfection and feeling like i have to be perfect and do well and be everything to my children that's just wrong i need to be authentic and gentle and kind with myself And as I do that, I can really feel that way about my kids and other people too. So I've changed my mind about the rigor of what I have to be in order to raise kids that thrive. Tina Payne Bryson and Dan Siegel are the authors of the new book, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired. Tina, thank you so much for your wonderful work. Thank you so much, Dave. If this conversation was useful to you, three related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is the last time Tina was on, episode 310, How to Reduce Drama with Kids. In that conversation, Tina and I explored the lessons from one of the earlier books between her and Daniel Siegel, No Drama Discipline. It is a book, and that conversation I think of almost daily in the constant work as a parent of getting better at uh, interacting with our kids and uh, being present. In addition to this new book, uh, it's something that I think about and utilize all the time. Both Bonnie and I have really pulled so many lessons from Tina and Daniel uh, in their work. So I'd recommend that episode as well, especially if you found this one helpful. Also recommended is episode 431, Align Your Calendar to What Matters with Near Aol. Near joined me last year in that conversation to talk about how to 
utilize strategy around your calendar in order to really think in advance of how to spend the time on what matters. And why that's related to this conversation is, for many of us, spending time with kids, as we talked about today, is so critical and so important. And I do spend time, I know Bonnie does, thinking through an advanced calendar time with uh, family and events and making sure that we prioritize that well and are very intentional about that. Episode 431 is a really useful framework to do that in a practical way. And finally, I recommend episode 453, Family Productivity with Bonnie. Uh, Bonnie and I talked in that episode about some of the strategies and mindsets we use in order to be effective and productive and intentional as a family. And we highlighted also some of the lessons from her recent book, The Productive Online and Offline Professor, and how those lessons relate to her work and also our work as a family. So uh, all of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website along with many others. And as you know, once in a while I do step aside from the traditional topics of leadership and even occasionally talk about kids here on the show. And I know many of you have children in your life, and this is directly relatable, and some of you do not, and this conversation maybe isn't as helpful for you, even if you have children in other places in your life. And I also am conscious that there's a few of you uh, out there listening that would love to have children as part of your life and for whatever reason uh, are not able to, or at least are not able to yet. Bonnie and I for many years struggled with infertility, and we weren't sure we were going to be able to have kids. And Thankfully, uh, we were able to, and we feel blessed every day to have our children in our lives. But the story is not always a happy ending for everyone. And for those of you who are in our community and uh, thinking about that in the context of this conversation, just know I know you are there, and I see you too. For more, visit the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you'd like access for more resources, I'd encourage you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. Dot com, and you'll get access to the entire episode library that we've aired since 2011, searchable by topic. One of the topic areas is parenting, but of course, there's many other topics as well. Coaching, strategy, conversations, so many other resources there. It'll also give you access to my weekly leadership guide that shows up every Wednesday. And you can get all of the free member benefits just by going over to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Bonnie back to the show. It will be the first Monday of the month, and we are taking your questions. If you have a question you'd like us to consider either for next week or a future Q&A episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com feedback, and we'll see you back next Monday. Take care.